0: The car business is rapidly changing and modern car dealers are meeting the demand. I'm Michael Cirillo, and together, we're going to explore what it takes to create a thriving dealership and life in the retail automotive industry. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with subject matter experts that are designed to help you grow. This is The Dealer Playbook. In this episode, I'm joined by an award-winning business mogul, author, filmmaker, and founder of the brain nutrition startup, Accelerated Intelligence. You might have heard of his invention, Herbal Ecstasy, it's 100% legal. If you're not familiar with it, you should probably go learn about it. Also, this is where I would say, are you living under a rock? I don't know. I don't know, DPB gang, but maybe that's the case. He is a serial entrepreneur with more than 30 years of experience and over $350 million in sales. I'm very excited to introduce you to Shaheen Shan. Thanks so much for joining me on the Dealer Playbook podcast.
1: So good to be on, Michael. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, it goes without saying, but you've had a tremendous career, uh, and it's still going, and it's still skyrocketing, and you're doing all these incredible things, but I can only imagine... Um you know, as I've consumed your content that it can, I use the term, no pun intended, but it's kind of come together organically. Like none of us are born going, I have the mindset to be an entrepreneur and build a business that does 350 million in sales. Things happen over time. So I'm curious, what has your journey up to this point been like, and are there pivotal moments or aha moments where you were like, ah, that's going to help me go to the next level?
1: Yeah, totally. So, look, I I chalk a lot of this up to grit and being able to overcome adversity. So, you know, I know that you might have uh, heard about my story before, but you know, I left home when I was 15, started my first company, and we went from 0 to close to a billion dollars, maybe even broke a billion dollars in those days pre-internet. And before that, the journey that led me to that was one that I write about in my upcoming book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Cult. And we just got a movie deal for it too, which I'm super wow. excited about now. Um, but you know, the, the thing that led me to my success was overcoming adversity after adversity and creating a mindset. That I could overcome anything. Because if you can live through some of the hardest moments in your life, there is always an upside. It's what Seth Godin, the the brilliant marketer, talks about in his book, The Dip, in that, you know, when you start something new, it's always easy. But then at a certain point, you end up in this dip and you're looking up at this massive mountain. Now, if you can traverse, this mountain. If you can climb this hill and do all that hard work, at a certain point you will plateau, and then your journey will be downhill. But until you get there, there is a price to be paid for anybody in any industry, and that's really you know what happened to me. I was I left home from fifteen. At 15 uh, Iranian immigrants came here from Iran, basically left everything behind, cut all contacts with everybody. And I was sleeping in abandoned buildings. I realized in those days that the uh, realtors had these things called lock boxes where they had keys. And this is pre-internet you know, era. So you could get the codes to that. And LA was in a building boom. So you could go crash, or you, I don't think anyone else did, but I did. <laughs> you could go crash inside these like luxury apartments that were under construction. As long as I cleaned up and was out by you know the time the brokers got in i was good and so i was doing that i was sleeping in abandoned cars you know i had the pages of think and grow rich pasted to the to the top of the trunk reading them with a flashlight thinking to myself man i got to figure out a way to make money and i got into the electronic music scene the rave scene at that time and i managed to somehow invent this pill and i tell the story about it you know we i know we've got a limited amount of time so i won't go fully into it but I managed to get a girlfriend. I managed to figure out how to create an alternative to the biggest drug in that time, which was called ecstasy. I managed to convince her that when her dad was out to let me cook it up in the kitchen. Now, this was all herbs, natural ingredients. We weren't doing anything illicit. And I got the courage to walk up to one of the biggest drug dealers at the time in the electronic music scene and convince him, sell him, influence him on selling my product instead of real drugs, and he reluctantly did. And the pivot point was when I when I did that. I had those pills in my bag. I had no money. I had spent every last cent in the world. I didn't even have enough to eat on making these pills. And I was convinced that I was going to make my mark. And I walked up, wouldn't take no for an answer from this like legit drug dealer. <laughs> the moment I was doing that, trying to get him to sell my pills instead of real drugs, and him saying no, I, me thinking I'm going to get like killed by this guy. <laughs> a couple people walked up he was out of supply i was at the right time at the right place he said fuck it let me let me you know let me let me try this he sold it came back a couple hours later the entire club was bouncing up and down they had all taken my pills and he looked at me and i was like this was the stupidest idea ever i am an idiot i am so sorry <laughs> and he said kid when can you get me more wow and that was it it went from one one guy to 100 guys, to 1,000 guys, to 10,000 guys, a lot of these drug dealers became legitimate. They legitimized themselves. And they became big distributors for my product. We started selling in Urban Outfitters, Warehouse and Tower Records, sex stores. Larry Flint started buying tons and pumping it through his thing. Uh, Penthouse Magazine, Playboy Magazine, we were selling everywhere. And then we were at festivals. And I walked into my office one day. And now remember, six months before, sleeping in abandoned buildings, and I had 200 employees. And at this time, I had a lot of hustle, Michael. So I wasn't sleeping too much, you know, maybe a couple hours. I would sleep on the factory floor. Right. I would sleep in the office floor, you know, wherever I could lay my head. And then I would get up and I would go to work. And I was exhausted. My hair was long and scraggly. <laughs> and I walked into the office and the news broke that we had broken a billion dollars in revenue pre internet, pre COVID, pre cell phones, pre. Facebook, pre all that stuff. Wow! And I thought to myself, "Holy shit! I don't know how much a billion dollars is." And I had this <laughs> huge panic moment where, like, this huge. Sam Donaldson was in a limo on his way to my office. The great reporter Sam Donaldson on Nightline was there. Montel Williams had sent me tickets to fly out to New York. I was doing a big photo shoot for Details Magazine uh, with David Lachapelle. You know, it was it was it was a huge, insane time for me. And my level of sophistication was, such, you know, people, the guy, one of the top guys at Bear Stearns want to take my company public. And my level of sophistication was such that I didn't even know how much money, the money that I had was. right. And from there, it became an insane wild ride. And we write, I, I write about it in my book. I, I'll get you a copy for sure. But, you know, we had run-ins with the mob, run-ins with the Yakuza, the government, which was worse than all of them. And it led to quite an interesting journey.
0: All I can think about is because I can only imagine what these run-ins were like. You've just now disrupted. You are the disruptor potentially. I mean, for those that don't want to change their ways, you're the disruptor to the drug scene, uh, where there's gazillions of dollars being, being, you know, distributed. Um, And you don't, you know, I'm anticipating you don't know what you don't know. As as you've said, your sophistication level is such. You're kind of in, you know, you're on the peak of, what is it, the Dunning-Kruger effect? The peak amount stupid. Um, And then I think about what we're facing in the automotive industry today. There are big tech incumbents that are coming in that are going to potentially, there's been some disruptive innovation there, there shifting the way people are buying cars and they're trying to bring things online and that's disrupting the way that a local car dealer might do things. But I've always tended to think, hey, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity because you can meet the demand where it is and you don't have to just lay down and die. And I'm I'm just picturing you in these moments. There's There must have been some lay down and die, give up. This is going to get too hard moments, even though you had the hustle and the grit. But What was it about your mindset? Like, what did, where did your mind have to be in order to continue, as you've said, traverse the mountain?
1: So that's interesting. I think it's all about mindset. And coming to the United States as an immigrant from Iran, my mindset was one that, you know, in Iran, five years old, I would leave the house. I'd have a little gang we'd be running with. We'd hang out. You know, I was top of the heat. Came to this country and I was third class citizen. It was during the wrong contra. I was getting my ass kicked every day. And I very quickly learned my quote unquote place. And that led to me going, man, you know, like it's got, things got to get better than this. And then my family ended up buying a house in a up-and-coming area that wasn't affluent when they bought. But right after they bought it, shot up like crazy and Reaganomics and trickle-down economics, all that stuff, the, the values of properties went up and, and very wealthy people started moving in. Why am I telling you this? Well, the reason why I'm telling you this is because as a child, as a 13-year-old, my, you know, my, my folks, their highest expectation of me, their highest hope was that I would become a doctor. They would be like, Shaheen will become a doctor. It will be the greatest thing in the world. That was the pinnacle of success for my dad, as far as he could see.
0: Right. For
1: me, I would look out the window and I'd see the dude that's a doctor. And I'd be like, man, that that fool is selling his hours for money. Mm. And the bank owns his house. The bank owns the car. The bank might own his wife. I don't want that life. I want... A different life. I want the life of the guy down the street who just built that huge mansion, who's got five Porsches and seven beautiful girls, and you know he's 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 living the life. I want that. I want the yacht life. But there was no path to it. In fact, the path that the the chips were stacked well against me. So I had to find a path. And what that makes you do? It's what Walter Isaacson, in his book about Steve Jobs, he writes about it, uh, and Steve Jobs. Also, you know, coming from an immigrant family who was adopted, um, I believe Lebanese, but is this is and, and the reason I'm saying this is because there is something to coming from a, a third world country, something not that Steve Jobs did, but something from having that in your DNA mm. that I think can really shift the way you think about things. And I thought, man, I want all that stuff. And so it was what Walter Isaacson calls the reality distortion field. I think that's the point I was getting at was that Steve Jobs created this thing where he would walk into a room and go, hey guys, um, I know it's just 1995, but I want a phone. I don't want any buttons. I want to work on our operating system. And the engineers would be like, oh, okay, this is cool. We're talking 10 years, 15 years. He'd be like, very funny. Wednesday afternoon, let's go. Yeah. And these guys who were planning on doing this 10 years down the line would just be floored but somehow by hook or by crook they would figure it out and we all know you know what happened during you know the big Steve Jobs early release for the for the iPhone <laughs> where the thing bombed on TV but it didn't matter it's the reality distortion field it's the same thing that Elon Musk has right. when he's got his bulletproof truck and he's showing it and then he throws he a rock and it breaks the window <laughs> right. it doesn't fucking matter now I, as far as the automotive industry goes, I'm, I'm a huge fan of cars. And now I am a petrol guy through and through. Gasoline, I like a clutch. I like, I like to feel part of my car. I feel when when I buy a car, I feel I am transported into the world of the designer, the engineers. I'm into the diamond stitching. And I like the, the Porsche supple leather compared to the other leathers right. and, and the way the car sounds and the exhaust. And it's, it's a visceral experience for me. Now, I was an early adopter too in electric cars. I built one of the first electric Porsches, interestingly enough, because I I like electric cars. I like that concept. And you were talking about disruption in the market, and it's really interesting because one of my favorite quotes, I'll tell you this, is when you are sleeping- your enemies are planning your demise. And I I, I use that quote in my book several times. I think it's it's a very effective one. And I feel like that's happening now. Not, Not to say I don't think the big four are sleeping at all. Not anymore. I think they were. I don't think electric cars should be categorized in the same category as cars. I think they are an appliance. When you drive a Tesla, that thing is so scary fast and so perfect and so smooth you go into the compartment but what it lacks in my opinion I'm probably going to get hate mail a lot of people hate me for this but it lacks soul it lacks the soul of having that clutch it lacks that imperfection that comes from years of like fucked up engineering from like italian guys and german right. dudes that are like you know they're 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 greasing the things these are appliances made by tech companies that are perfect at doing what they do. They are surgical. Their speed is, you know, uncomparable. So what you're facing now is an industry that is facing a crisis and being disrupted by an appliance. And I think that separation has to be made. They have to pick a fucking identity and go with it. Now, they can go both ways, like uh, GM is doing, you know, making outstanding Electric cars. Some people might argue too late. I don't think so. I think they're making spectacular cars. You know, I was one of the first guys to get. I got one of the first Volts off the production line, and that thing is is amazing. But it, to me, it is not a car. It is an appliance. So, if they were to separate that with their cars, I think that their crisis would be much more defined, and then they could they could they could act on it. We always talk about these three steps that can solve any problem that my friend Wayne Boss, I always credit him with this, is knowledge, courage, and action. Mm. When you're faced with any kind of a problem or situation, the first thing you need to do is have knowledge. How do you get knowledge? You can buy it, you can rent it, you can borrow it, you can steal it. That may be better not to steal it, but you can get <laughs> it, right? You can rent right. it, you can hire it, you can get knowledge anywhere. Once you have that knowledge, that knowledge gives you courage because now we have the information. We know what we need to do. If I told you, hey, man, go start a business, you'd be like, okay, there's some risk. I don't know how, to whatever, but I'd be like, hey, start a business and you've got 80% chance of making 50 million bucks a year. You'd be all over it because you had that knowledge. Right. It gives you courage. And the third step is action. You got to take action. So, And it's in the, in those in that specific order. Knowledge, courage, action is what we talk about.
0: In your experience, because I know you collect vehicles, um, I'm guessing you've had a lot of experience inside dealerships over the years. Based on based on what you've experienced, and based on what you've just said, which I think is you are you are the only person. I feel like we need a live studio audience to just give us a round of applause here. You are the first person who has ever suggested a distinction between electric vehicles and petrol powered vehicles. And I've never even thought of it to the, like, just how you were explaining this, uh, as an appliance, I've never thought of it that way. I've, I've admittedly only ever thought of EVs as this is the next thing. This is where people are going you you better go invest in a in a motorcycle dealership because i know one thing for sure as a motorcycle rider i always want to crank the throttle i don't want a self riding motorcycle i don't want you know but in your experience over the years now collecting purchasing vehicles the dealership experience all those sorts of things in accordance to what you just said the three steps to solving any problem what do dealerships need to change or shift in your opinion?
1: Salesmanship is dead. Mm. I know car salesmen are going to hate me, but every time, and I love walking onto lots and looking at cars, and I also like to negotiate. So I enjoy walking onto lots and just hearing dude sales pitch. This is one thing I will tell you. The guys who sell the most cars... And this is going to be a shocking statistic for some of you guys. Don't know shit about cars. Selling cars has nothing to do with cars. Selling cars has to do with people. What are the two biggest purchases that people make in their entire lives? Their home and their car. Both things that are heavily charged with emotion. When a guy walks onto a lot, he's not thinking, I'd like to get in a hunk of metal that's going to take me from point A to point B. He's thinking, of all things but that. He is feeling an emotion. He wants an emotional connection to the car. Now the dealer comes up, "Can I help you out, sir? You've already lost the fucking game. We've and and we've gotten further and further from that. Now with the internet and Zoom and and all this people salesmen are just too used to the Order coming in, you know, online, the sales order coming in, and then sending it to their internet sales guy and you know, like talking to the guy about the features and details of the car. No one gives a shit about that. <laughs> the guys that sell cars, and I, I remember reading this article, this NPR article about this dealership in in New Jersey. And they they did this. It was a uh, they they also had a, a radio podcast to go along with it. Was fantastic. And they they actually followed this dealership. And the dude, the I think his name was Vinny. His name was actually Vinny, the guy that sold the most cars. Like, and they asked him, like, do you know if this is like a V eight Hemi or a V eight this or that? He didn't know shit. He didn't know any of that. And he was crushing the other salespeople. Why? Because he knew people. He could get that information, all those details and stuff. You could get. Right? And it's good if you are in an industry, if you're selling Corvettes, that you know everything about them or as much about them as possible. But at the end of the day, the core elements of influence don't change. If you're doing what I do, I train people how to make money on Amazon every day. I've got an Amazon course. So I teach them how to create influence on Amazon. And I, coach people all the time, people who have coaching programs, uh, young young startup entrepreneurs, VCs bring me companies to help coach them. Sales is one of the most critical, one of the most essential skills that you could have. And to master sales, you have to become an influencer of people. First and foremost, you got to put yourself beneath that person. If you're coming at somebody with that shiny suit, greased up hair, kind of like, hey, buddy, I'm going to make you a great deal, you've already lost the sale. The sale is made in the persuasion. The sale is made by you being an authentic, genuine person and getting to know other people. Most of the time, people will buy from you just because they like you. If somebody's on a lot already looking at a car, you know, unless they're kicking tires, they've probably somewhere in their decision-making process, have already been persuaded that they're going to buy the car. And what I see happening over and over and over again is car dealers talking people out of the sale. Mm. Their, their sales process goes backwards. Yeah. So sales starts with persuasion, as, as Caldini talks about, Professor Caldini and his book Influence and his follow-up book, Persuasion, both fantastic. If you're a salesperson, if you're dealing in cars, selling cars, anything in business, you need to read Caldini's books. I've got no affiliation with Professor Caldini, but his books really are, are revolutionary. Um, and he talks about the fact that most sales happen Before the guy even walks onto your lot, before the person even visits your website, that sale is done. So let's focus on that. We can have so much more impact then. And then instead, you can just focus on being less of an asshole. When somebody walks onto the lot, be a real person. Like Just fucking talk to that person and just be a human being and stop trying to think of like meeting your quota or making the sale. That's all bullshit. And they know, and people
0: can smell it. Yeah. Ooh, it's the last day of the month. We're, we're in the last week of the month. We got to close, you know, we got to get those deals going. We got to get those deals on. This resonates with me, um, Shaheen, because it's something that we believe so deeply in, not just in my business, but also here on the podcast. It's one of the reasons why we produce this show, because we want to reach as many professionals in the auto industry as possible to get what you just said across. And I go, you know, how many more people do we need to say Something similar to what you just said, putting yourself below the person service, senior to selling um, the the power of persuasion, the fact that customers today are more educated walking onto the lot than they've ever been in the, the history of our planet, because you can get all the information you need already. And I love specifically what you're saying about being an authentic, genuine person. This is like the thing that there's no tactic on like i can't be like here are three steps to becoming more authentic it's like <laughs> you know it's it's that thing do you have a desire to serve and be a good person and to do what's right even if that doing that right thing is not the popular opinion like there's just so many elements into it i've experienced what you've just said in my own career so i can i can add my my testimony if you will to what you're saying for those listening my team has witnessed quote, unquote, sales calls where we didn't even talk about what we were going to do. And the deal closes and they go, wait, did you just close a deal by saying, I want your kids to feel comfortable enough calling you Uncle Mike? Like, what? How does that? And and I think it's, you know, it's what you're saying. It's, it's that, you know, it, it's being in alignment with that individual, understanding them, showing empathy being authentic, doing what's right for them. So the sales already happened. People aren't dumb. People know what they want. So yeah. how did wh- where did you make that connection? And you've mentioned some books here by Professor Caldini. Um, along the way, how did you make these connections or what did you do to, to master this art of sales or persuasion or being a good person, as I like to say?
1: I think everything is sales. I had a mentor when I first started off and he took me out and he showed me, he's like, look, I know you don't have any money now, kid, but look around you. And I looked and I was like, what? I don't see anything. I see benches, cars, houses. Like, What are you talking about? And he's like, everything you see around you has been sold from one person to the next. I said, okay. He's like, master that. Master how a human influences another human to do something. And you've mastered life. You'll never be hungry again. You'll never be broke again. And that's what I did. I started learning about the great salespeople. How how do you become a salesperson? You know, in American culture, it's something that's stigmatized. So when we think about salespeople, immediately resistance goes up. Right. And a lot of people. Come at it with a different perspective. Eastern perspective is very different. I'm, I'm a big fan of Alan Watts. I don't know if you've if you've heard of Alan Watts, a great philosopher. And he talks a lot about the difference between East and West. And just like you were saying, a lot of the times, this, and in, in, especially in, in the situation that you just demonstrated, the sale was made before you even got on the phone. That was just a formality. Mm-hmm. The fact that you were on the phone talking to these folks is just a formality. They had already decided to buy from you, and that's exactly what we're talking about here. You know, for me, that was the big shift: was having a mentor who had succeeded, and me trying to emulate him and, and learn from him, and understand the importance of influence and all influences sales i teach that on amazon now what we learned from jeff bezos and from uh, creating products on the amazon platform is that now we can compete with these big companies i've got students all the time in this course that i teach that make 50 100 150 grand a month selling on amazon when they started from zero and they do it Because they're competing with these mega companies, these massive brands, and they can do it successfully on Amazon. Why? Because they know how to tell a better story. Mm. They know how to tell that story in a way that converts on that Mm. platform. If you're doing face-to-face sales, it's a different form of influence, but the pillars are the same. The foundation of that influence is the same, and influence
0: is everything. You're blowing my mind. I love this (laughs) conversation. I wish I went back to my long. I, I think I need to do an, another one with you back, but we're going to go like Joe Rogan length somehow. Or it's Would love like to, man. Four hours. Tell me a little bit just in closing here about the book I see in front of you, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. You said it's coming out. You've certainly talked about some of the concepts from the book, but I'd love to love to hear more.
1: Yeah. So guys, don't wait for the film to come out. That's going to be a couple years. I'm told it takes a couple years for that kind of stuff to happen, but the book will be out as we speak. It's being released. So in the next few days, by the time you're probably listening to this podcast, the book will be released. It's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. And you can get the first chapter for free on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we have a podcast called Hack and Grow Rich, Make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast as well and if anybody's interested in selling on amazon for people of your podcast um i would like to offer my one hour amazon mastery course normally 200 bucks absolutely for free just reach out to me on fba seller course.com or go to shaheenshan.com i'm sure we'll include it in the show notes and click on course reach out to me email me if i can help inspire you on your journey and impact your life in any way, I remain at your service.
0: Amazing. Shaheen, thanks so much for joining me on The Dealer Playbook Podcast.
1: Yeah. Honored to be on. Thank you so much.
0: I'm Michael Cirillo and you've been listening to The Dealer Playbook Podcast. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button wherever you're listening right now. Leave a rating or review and share it with a colleague. Thanks for listening.